Hey everybody and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking about neuroeconomics with Camelia Kunin, an Associate Professor of Finance at the UNC Keenan Flagler Business School. Neuroeconomics is one of those terms that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with, and some people may have never heard the word at all because this field of study is just so new. So let's start there today. Let's define what neuroeconomics is. Neuroeconomics is a uh, relatively new academic field. It got started around 2005, so really by now it's only 12 years old. It's an effort to put together knowledge from uh, neuroscience, psychology, and economics and finance to make better sense of behavior that we observe out there in the marketplace, behavior of investors, behavior of consumers. It's, a, I think, a worthwhile effort because for a long time in economics, we've worked with these assumptions that most individuals that you see out there, most consumers and investors are very rational. They make these calculated, cold-blooded decisions and everything works out. But it turns out that we are all actually humans and humans make mistakes that are predictable and humans have emotions that lead to their decisions being not always 100% rational. So it turns out that knowing something about how the brain works, knowing something about psychology, is in fact useful for understanding economic behavior. And this is the goal of this field. Since this field is so new, how did you get involved in it? What initially spurred your interest in wanting to enter neuroeconomics? I think I was I was at the right time, at the right place. I had gone to MIT for undergraduate, and I, I had two majors. One was neuroscience and one was finance. And then I, I was doing a finance PhD at Stanford. And at Stanford, there were two professors. One professor, Antonio Rangel, was in the economics department. Another one, Brian Knudsen, was a very young faculty member in the neuroscience uh, department. These two people were talking about this, this field called neuroeconomics, and I... I really enjoyed talking to the both of them, taking courses from them. They were not really about neuroeconomics. They were pure economics or pure neuroscience classes. But I realized that there was an interest to mix these two fields. And this was an interest that I had had since finishing my undergraduate degree at, at MIT because of my, my two majors, neuroscience and finance. I thought, you know, at some point I'd like to combine these two somehow for a job. I was at Stanford doing my PhD at the time when there was this small group of people getting together and saying, hey, let's have a conference where we invite economists and neuroscientists and we can think about how we can work together to, to learn from each other with, with the goal of, again, understanding behavior a little bit better. And I, I started to, to work with these two professors, the economist and the neuroscientist. I kind of got on the bandwagon at the very beginning of the field Turns out, you know, a few years later, I, I ended up even being the president of Society for Neuroeconomics, so, so really I got in early. And I really enjoy it. It's, it's, it's amazing to be in a brand new academic field because the, the questions you can ask have never been asked or answered by anybody before, right? So it's exciting. You're not, you're not doing an interesting work. It's all very new and very cool. So I guess the logical question when talking about neuroeconomics is how does the brain and the mind impact what we do financially? And why is it important for us to understand and study how the mind relates to what we do with our money? Well, when you make financial decisions, it turns out you do use your brain. <laughs> but we were interested in, in understanding exactly how you use your brain to make financial decisions. What, what brain areas are most important for your decision to either go for a lot of financial risk or to go for something very safe in your portfolio? 
we thought that that it wasn't just going to be this decision about how much risk to bear in your portfolio was not going to be a very calculated, very rational choice. We expected to observe that the brain areas that are related to emotion processing, to affect, that they would be very much involved. It, and it turns out that we were right. We did a, an experiment where we had participants come to the laboratory. We had them be in brain scanners while uh, they were investing their money. And we could measure the amount of risk that they're willing to bear. And we could predict from trial to trial, from choice to choice, we could predict who was going to take more financial risk, who was going to put more of their money in in risky things like stocks rather than in safer assets like a savings account based on activation in two centers that are very important for emotion processing. One of them, it's called the nucleus accumbens or the reward part of your brain. It's very important for the understanding of potentially good things out there for the organism. It's a very primitive structure, evolutionarily speaking, it's been with us for a long time. You need it to understand when there's something good for you out there to, to help you stay alive and you know thrive. It works through a brain neurotransmitter called dopamine that pretty much keeps track of, of how much reward is available to, to you out there in the environment. So this structure gets activated more anytime there is a possibility or, or a sight of, of potential reward out there. And what we saw in our experiment was that if people, for whatever reason, which may have nothing to do with the financial choice at hand, if they had more activation in this in the structure, they were going to go for risk. They were going to go for risky things for stocks, even though at that point in time, given the information available to them, those were not the right assets to invest in. We also saw another area that's involved uh, in, in emotion processing that's called the anterior insula be very important for deciding how much risk people were willing to, to take. The anterior insula allows human beings to basically avoid potentially bad things out there in the environment, to, to engage in a avoidance behavior. Just like the nucleus accumbens, the other area that I mentioned, allows you to engage in an approach behavior to go for something that's potentially good for you. The anterior insula helps you engage in avoidance behaviors whenever you perceive something to be potentially bad for you in the environment. So the structure, we saw that if it was more active when people are deci- deciding how to invest money in their portfolio, we observed that the more activation there was in the structure in the anterior insula, the more likely people were to keep their money in safe assets, to not invest in risky things. The important thing here is that these two structures, again, allow you to either approach or avoid things that in the environment are either good for you or they're bad for you. And we're talking about reactions to very primitive kind of stimuli. You know, you go for food if you're hungry or you avoid a snake that you see on the ground. So the same structures that allow you to function in a very primitive environment are very important for your decisions about how much much risk to have in your financial portfolio. So the point of this early work that we did was to say people make decisions about money that that hinge on brain centers that are involved in emotion processing. Uh, we're not talking about people making these very calculated decisions about how much risk to bear. It's a lot of it is is gut feeling, instinctual, is emotion driven, um, and it's predictable. I, in other experiments, we we were able to to change activation in these emotional centers of people from the outside by giving them cues that had nothing to do with the choice at hand. So basically, you can make people more excited or you can make people more anxious. And you can see that this triggered how they invest their money. This has implications for what you see outside of the laboratory in the real world in that we now understand why people take a lot of risk after they've seen many rewards around. For example, after the stock market has been has been doing great, you see that people are even more likely to put money in, in these assets, even though probably by that time prices are a little bit too high. 
just like you know after a, a crash everybody or or after a bad event like a like a bad flood for instance you see everybody becoming more more risk averse another more uh, recent question that that um, several of us have had on our minds is it stems from the fact that this country went through a very difficult economic time in the past decade a lot of people uh, were faced with difficult financial conditions were, were faced with unemployment a lot of money-related stress. So I was wondering uh, a couple of years back whether this this prolonged exposure to adverse economic conditions, if it does something to how people think about their opportunities, what's available to them, what they can achieve. There is work that's been done with kids who grew up in adverse environments, situations where in the family either there's a lot of economic stress or maybe there are issues with violence or or drug abuse. And it turns out that the kids who grew up in these very adverse environments, later when they become young adults, they have a a response to, to rewarding stimuli or aversive stimuli that's quite different from the responses that you see in, in kids who grew up in, in, in less adverse situations. In particular, what you see is that kids who grew up in uh, adverse economic environments are those who, as young adults, have a blunted response to rewarding stimuli. So in, in an experiment that they're doing while you're scanning their brain, you can say to them, here, you just won this, this, you know, this amount of money, or here's a, a reward for you for your performance. And and they have a blunted response, a diminished response to that reward. It's as if they're not fully believing it or they're not fully accepting it. Whereas if in that experiment they either lose money or there's some sort of a, an adverse occurrence, then uh, you see their brain reacting much more to, to that relative to what you observe in the brain of kids who grew up in less adverse environments. So what this told me was that it's possible that if if you spend a lot of your life in a situation where bad stuff just kind of keeps happening around you and and not a lot of good stuff, then it's going to change the way your brain reacts down the road to other things happening in your life, even though you may not be in that same adverse environment that you were in as a kid. I I studied this in, in several papers afterwards where, indeed, I find that kids who grew up adverse economic situations later on as adults have um, more pessimistic views about the stock market, about the macroeconomy in general. Basically, they, they have a, a view of the world that's, that's colored in a pessimistic manner relative to the view of the world that's held by people who grew up in less adverse environments. And this is not just true for people who grew up in adverse environments. You can do similar studies looking at adults who are currently experiencing difficult economic conditions. And and you ask these people, what do you think is going to happen to the U.S. stock market or to the entire U.S. economy? So you're not asking about their personal situation. You're talking. You're asking them about their beliefs about how how the whole country will be doing, and how the entire stock market will be doing. And and you see that people who have experienced negative economic shocks, even as grown-ups, not just as kids, have this very pessimistic view about what the stock market can deliver, about where the economy is going. What we see here is a very clear pattern in that individuals who are at the bottom of the social economic status ladder, they view the world very differently in a much more pessimistic manner than people who are at the top of the social economic status ladder. And then it's all coming from the fact that the brain, after being faced with a lot of adversity, you know, a lot of time of basically negative outcomes all the time, 
the brain simply becomes more responsive to negative outcomes and, and it doesn't accept or respond as much to positive outcomes. And this leads to people having, to people who have faced adversity, leads to them having these very negative views, these very pessimistic views about the entire country, the entire economy, the entire stock market. There are consequences that are quite important of, of this of this difference in beliefs that you observe across people in this country, people coming from different levels of income or education. You know, what we see is that people who are coming from a lower socioeconomic status environment, those who do have these more pessimistic views about uh, the stock market or about the macroeconomy, they are the same people who avoid investing in stocks, who avoid making investments in, in, in human capital. So these decisions are coming in part for sure from, from their very pessimistic view about the world. They're, the choices that they make, in fact, will keep them at the lower end of the social economic status spectrum. Whereas people who are up high on this ladder of social economic status, they have more optimistic views about what, say, stocks can deliver in return, about where unemployment is going to go. They end up making investment in risky assets. And turns out over the long run, this is sort of the right thing to do. It's going to help these individuals accumulate even more wealth down the road. So based off of this research that you've mentioned and really what neuroeconomics is doing as a whole, how can this research help the consumer or help the economy as a whole? Why is it important that we study this? So speaking again about this idea that, that the economic adversity changes the way your brain reacts to, to positive versus negative news. If you believe this finding that it, it tells you that it's important for somehow for policymakers or for educators to, to intervene and tell these people who, who basically have overly pessimistic views about about the economy, about what investments are and what they could do for you. So these people need to be educated. They need to, to have their beliefs changed. They're, they have to, to, to have the correct expectations about what is the stock market? What have been historical returns in the stock market? You know, what are what are trends in unemployment? So I think that you could you could do a lot in in sort of correcting the views about the world and the the views about one's opportunities of people by educating them early on. I can I can see people in high school having to take a a, a basic financial literacy course where they learn facts about, again, what is the stock market and what are current macroeconomic conditions, um, just just to give everybody some objective measurement of, of the opportunity set that's available to people in this country. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. And don't forget to check back to unc.edu next week for another episode of Well Said, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Android apps.